All right, let's open up to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. Are we good, Stephen? Are we recording? 1 Kings chapter 1. Um, there we go. <clears throat> and on your handout, if you're looking at the comments at home, uh, we have some vital statistics, right? 22 chapters, 816 verses. 24,513 words. The time period, and this is based on Usher's chronology, but they're good dates, 1015 B.C. to 897 B.C. That's kind of the span of the book, right? And um, it really actually starts, if you're doing a timeline, it starts with the death of Solomon and the ascension, I'm sorry, the death of David and the ascension of Solomon to the throne. That's like one end of the book. And really... uh, King Jehoshaphat is really, by the end of the book, we're dealing with a split kingdom, and the King Jehoshaphat is there, really, he's fading, he dies at the end of the book, King Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom of Judah, that's kind of your bookends there, right, Solomon rising, and then Jehoshaphat and Ahab in the north and south kingdoms on one end. Uh, The key figure in the book, as I note there, is Solomon, and I just want to say a few things about Solomon that you could add to your notes. Solomon is one of the most unique characters in the Bible. And uh, he reigns for 40 years, like his father David. He starts right there around 1015 B.C. And he actually reigns during the highest part, well, the highest point of Israel's history. So when we get into 1 Kings and we get into like 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, like this chunk of time here, especially 1 Kings and the early part there, Solomon's reign, that is really the height of Israel. That is like the greatest period in Israel's history thus far is during Solomon's reign. And Solomon is a great type of Christ, amen, and he's a type of Antichrist. So he's a strange bird, Solomon. He's hard to figure out sometimes. You say, how could Solomon be a type of Christ and a type of Antichrist at the same time? Because the Antichrist and Jesus Christ are going to be kind of hard to tell apart. Only somebody with the Word of God and the heart for God and the Spirit of God upon him is really going to be able to tell. The Bible says it's possible that he's going to deceive possibly even the very elect in the tribulation, right, if it were possible. That's how good a faker he's going to be, that some of those Jews are going to eat. They could be deceived if if God wanted them to be deceived, right? He's, He's that close. He's that close. And he writes three of the five wisdom books of your Bible. Right? So your wisdom books are, are Job, uh, that's the sufferings, right? That's about suffering. Um, Psalms is the heart of your Bible, because that's really the heart of God right there. But Solomon writes, I picked the worst marker in the world. Um, Solomon writes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. I'm just going to abbreviate. And it's really interesting how Solomon writes those three books. Because Solomon, who's supposedly the wisest man who ever lived, lays out in those three books the mind of God. The Trinity. Watch it now, right? In those three books. In Proverbs, you get the mind of the Father. And a lot of the book of Proverbs has to do with the Father's relationship to Israel. You know what the last chapter is about in Proverbs? It's about a virtuous woman. And really the goal of the book of Proverbs is to take a woman and turn her into a virtuous woman. And that's what the father is going to try to do with Israel. He's trying to take this nation 
and make it a virtuous woman. Now, we could apply things to the church. You're supposed to be his virtuous woman as the bride of Christ. But Proverbs is about the mind of the Father. Ecclesiastes is about the mind of the Spirit. Right? And what happens in Ecclesiastes? In Ecclesiastes, he is searching everything. Science, society, He's kind of looking in on everything. And you know what his great conclusion is? All is vanity. You know, when the Holy Spirit runs itself, himself through everything in the world, you know what the conclusion he draws is? It's all vanity. It's all empty. It's all worthless. And the end of the book is really where we need to start. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's the great conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes, after the spirit of that book has just run his way through everything the world has to offer, everything that's under the sun. That's the key phrase in Ecclesiastes. I'm getting ahead of myself. But that's the key phrase. Everything under the sun is empty. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to show you. And the Song of Solomon is the mind of the sun. Right? If you remember from our study many months ago or years ago now, it's about Solomon loving his Gentile bride. It's Jesus Christ, the Son, and how all of his thoughts are towards you, the church. Because that whole book of the Song of Solomon is this love affair between Solomon and his bride. And, and church, guess what? Are you safe? Say amen. amen. Don't ever get away from the fact that at the end of the day, your entire Christian life is supposed to be a love affair between you and your Savior. That's what it's all about. It's not about service. It's not about labor. It's not about enduring. It's supposed to be a love affair between you and the one that gave his life for you. And Solomon lays that out. Solomon, who's this type of Christ, really shows us the triune mind of God, Father, Spirit, and Son, in the wisdom books that he writes. So that's a really interesting thing about Solomon. Um, As your sheet indicates, the key phrase is, as David his father. The key idea of the book is Jehovah is the sovereign ruler. It's so much about that God wants to rule his people. He wants to bless the obedient, he wants to punish the disobedient, and he wants to forgive the penitent. That's what God as our ruler wants to be. And so, as your sheet indicates, Jesus Christ is pictured as our king. Right? That's the picture you get of Christ in the book of 1 Kings. So, last thought on this, and then we'll dive into some of the chapters. Um, 1 and 2 Kings is going to really trace the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. We've seen the Jews start to get formulated as early as Abraham. We see them start getting called out as a people. We see them now really getting established, right? This is the height. This is really the center, historically, First and Second Kings is the center of your Old Testament, that Five to six hundred years that First and Second Kings covers is really the center of the history of the Old Testament. When Israel was at its height, First Kings, I guess I could write this. I'll, you could write this if you want to. First Kings is the rise of Solomon and the start of the decline of Israel. So First Kings about Solomon and how Israel starts to go on that downward turn. Second Kings is the collapse of the nation. So, uh, 1 Kings, the rise of Solomon, the beginning of the decline, 2 Kings, 
the collapse and the destruction of the nation. I should not use blue. I will get a better black marker next week. I apologize. But, you know, it's pretty scary how it turns on just one book. First Kings, in the beginning, everything's fantastic. Second Kings, they're getting taken into captivity. It could turn that fast. And as your sheet indicates, the basic breakdown of First Kings, it's cut really basically right in half again. 1 to 11 is that great period of Israel's history when Solomon is thriving. And the latter part of the book is the downfall. So let's get into 1 Kings now. Let's get into some Bible pictures and some important truths in the book of 1 Kings. So let's look at chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2 are the death of David and the ascension of Solomon to the throne. That's where we start the book. The death of David and the ascension of of Solomon to the throne. I want you to consider, please, the doctrinal picture in, the, in these books. Right? 1 Samuel. Who's king in 1 Samuel? Saul. Right? You know who Saul is? Saul is a type of antichrist. You know what he's doing, Saul, for most of the book? He's hunting David. David represents the spiritual man, the Jew who wants to follow God in the tribulation, and Saul is after him. Saul is hounding him. Most of your Psalms in the book of Psalms are just David's pleas with God. How long, Lord? How long, Lord? How long, Lord? He's the spiritual man being hunted. Second Samuel, you know what Second Samuel is about? It's about David. That's Jesus Christ. So you have the Antichrist, then you have the second coming pictured because David comes. What does David do? David destroys Israel's enemies. He wipes out the giants because they're going to be back, by the way. Right? He wipes out some of these people like Jesus Christ is going to crush Israel's enemies and he reigns for 40 years. Well, lo and behold, what's the next book? The next book is 1 Kings. And 1 Kings is about Solomon. And it is like God wrote the Bible. Antichrist tribulation, second coming when he wounds the heads of his enemies, and then we got millennium. (laughs) So the way the books of your Bible are laid out are what we call sometimes a pre-millennial order. They're laid out in a way that God is actually teaching you in the arrangement of the books. God is actually telling you a story, folks. That's the mind of God. In the arrangement of the books and in the originals, they weren't always laid out this way. Okay? So, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings, Antichrist, Jesus Christ, Millennium. Amen, amen, amen. All right? And if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 22, I don't know why it turns into Kings. I'm sorry. But you know what the Millennium is? Here, David's been fighting wars. His hands are full of blood. You know what Solomon was? Solomon was going to be a man of rest. No battles, no wars. Look at 1 Chronicles 22. Look at this comment on Solomon's reign. 1 Chronicles 22. This is a prophecy to David about what his son was going to be and do. Look at 1 Chronicles 22. Look down by verse 8. All right, 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Okay? All right, here's God talking to David. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly. That's David, right? Um, 
and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build an house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Yeah, that's a picture of Jesus Christ at the second coming. When Jesus Christ comes at the second coming, that blood is going to be up to the horse's bridles. In that valley of Megiddo, that's going to be a lot of blood. Pretty high. He's a man of war. He's shedding blood when he comes back, Jesus Christ. But look what it says about Solomon in verse number 9. Behold, a son shall be born to thee who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. You know what the millennium is? The millennium is God's day of rest. The millennium is God's seventh day. There are 7,000 years of human history. One day, two day, three day, Jesus, four day, Jesus Christ shows up on the fifth day, when life shows up on the fifth day, sixth day, we're just at the end now of that sixth day, and when Jesus Christ comes back and that seventh day begins, you know what Genesis chapter 2 says? That God is going to set that day apart and rest on the seventh day. And Solomon is going to be a man of rest because the millennium, guess what? No wars, no strife, no fighting, Because Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne and he's going to crack you with a rod of iron if anybody steps out of line. Perfect government, perfect righteousness, perfect everything. A man of rest is what Solomon pictures. Now go back to 1 Kings. Let's look at some things now about our good friend Solomon. So this, this pictures the future. 1 Kings 1, look at verse 33. I want you to notice something. It's before he's king, right? When he's about to be coming in as king. Verse 33 of 1 Kings. The king also said unto them, this is David talking about anointing Solomon, take with you the servants of your Lord and cause Solomon my son to ride upon mine own mule and bring him down to Gihon. Before he's king, Solomon rides in on a mule. Go to Zechariah chapter 9. Go to Zechariah chapter 9. Here's the prophecy of your Savior. Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9. Second to last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9. This is the first advent of Jesus Christ. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. There's that prophecy of Jesus Christ coming in, the Messiah, riding not on a horse yet, but on an ass. Then you read in Matthew 21, we're not going to turn there, but in Matthew 21, Jesus Christ enters Jerusalem. What does he ride? He rides into Jerusalem on that animal, right? But go to Revelation 19. You see, before Solomon was king, he rides in on a mule. Jesus Christ comes on the first advent. How come he didn't ride a horse into Jerusalem? Because he wasn't king yet. But when he comes as king, he comes on a horse. Revelation 19, verse 11, I think it is, right? 19, 11, right? 
And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. The thing I'm pointing out is nobody rides on the horse until he becomes king. Solomon, you got a mule. Jesus Christ, your first coming, you got that ass. But when he comes again to be uh, anointed king in spirit and in truth and take the throne, he's riding on a horse. And Jesus Christ is coming on that horse. Now go to back to 1 Kings chapter 1. I'm just warming up. Don't worry. I got some better ones. Don't worry. You just like, give me that look. Like, that all you got, Pat? 1 Kings 1. 1 Kings 1. Look at verse 5. I'm only kidding. 1 Kings 1, 5. <clears throat> 1 Kings 1, 5. I also want you to notice this picture, that the reign of Solomon is preceded by a false king. The reign of Solomon is preceded by a false king, Adonijah. Right? And what do we know about the millennium? The millennial reign of Jesus Christ is preceded by a false king, the Antichrist, his majesty the devil in a human body. Look at 1 Kings 1.5. I'll show you some things about Adonijah that should ring a bell if you've read your Bible and know anything about the Antichrist. By the way, the Antichrist is the second most popular character in the Bible, right? So he gets a lot of press. So you've got to start seeing him everywhere. You've got to really see these pictures. 1 Kings 1.5, it says, Now David's old and he's sickly, and he seizes upon that moment. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Please notice that Adonijah exalts himself. You see the words? Exalted himself just like the Antichrist. What does 2 Thessalonians say? It says that the Antichrist opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is worshipped or that is called God, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. That's what Adonijah does, a little forerunner of what the Antichrist is going to do. Look at verse 5 again. What does he say? What are the first two words out of his mouth? I will. Have you heard of anybody that says, I will a lot? (laughs) That's Lucifer's catchphrase in in Isaiah 14, right? He exalts himself by saying, I will, five times. Adonijah's following suit. But can you go to the book of Luke, chapter 14? Adonijah doesn't work out so good for Adonijah. He gets dethroned, and he eventually gets killed. And uh, same thing with the Antichrist. He's going to have that throne for a little while, and he's eventually going to get deposed, and he's going to get killed, and his body is going to be meat for the fowls of the air. Look at Luke 14. In fact, wait a second. I'm pulling an audible here. Uh, Go to Luke 14. Go there, go there, go there. Can I find it? Can I find it? Job, go uh, go to Luke 14. I am nowhere in the vicinity of Luke 14, but I want to find it. I want to find it. I want to find it. I can't find it. Uh, oh, yeah. In, in Job 41, you know, he's talking about Leviathan. You know what it says about Leviathan? He says uh, they're going to make a banquet of him. They're going to feed on the devil. Because when that devil takes a human body and Jesus Christ busts his head, you know what he's going to say? Hey, birds, dinner time, come and get it. He says, wilt thou play with him as with a bird? You think the devil's just got this unlimited reach and he knows everything you're doing? He's tricked you. 
He's, he's in time. He's not outside of time like God. He's bound by time. He's a created being. You know what God says about him? He goes, I play with him as a bird. Maybe you had a bird in a cage and it would be over here and you tap it and it would fly over there. And then you tap it over here and it would fly over there. That's how God deals with the devil. He's just going, okay, go this way now. Boop. Now go this way now. Boop. And he's just moving him around to accomplish his own will. And he says, Wilt thou play with him as with a bird, or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Because all those birds are going to come down and feast on the flesh of the Antichrist. <coughs> Not a good... Luke 14, verse 10. But when thou art bidden to go, when thou art bidden, meaning to a feast, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then thou shalt have worship in the presence of them that sit and meet with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself, see those words? Whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Take a lesson from the devil. When you exalt yourself, it never works out well. You always end up getting put down. But when you take the lowest seat and maintain some Holy Ghost humility, you know what happens? God will say, come up hither, <laughs> come up hither, you know, come sit a little higher. Amen, amen, amen. Go to 1 Kings chapter 2 again. 1 Kings chapter 2. And I want you to see something else. So when Solomon takes the reign, he's got to do some cleaning up. He's got to take care of Adonijah. He's got to take care of some of the guys that have been enemies to his father. And David kind of says, you know, it sounds like an Italian meeting in the back of a restaurant, if you ask me. He kind of says, you're a wise guy. You know what you should do. That's what he tells. That's kind of what he tells Solomon. You're a wise person. You're a wise guy. You know what you should do. And Solomon goes about and he kind of takes care of business. Takes care of some of the guys that have been problems for his father. And one of them is Joab. And in First Kings two twenty eight, let me show you this. What happens here? Um, Then tidings came to Joab, for Joab had turned after Adonijah. So Joab rebelled against David and Solomon, though he turned not after Absalom. And Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord and caught hold on the horns of the altar. And it was told King Solomon that Joab was fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord, and behold, he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go fall upon him. In other words, Italian translation, whack him. And Benaiah came to the tabernacle of the Lord, I told you he was a wise guy, and said unto him, Thus saith the king, Come forth. And he said, Nay, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king said unto him, Do as he hath said, and fall upon him, whack him, and bury him, that thou mayest take away the innocent blood which Joab shed for me and from the house of my father. And the Lord shall return his blood upon his own head, who fell upon two men more righteous and better than he, and slew them with the sword. My father David, not knowing thereof, to wit Abner, the son of Ner, captain of the host of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, captain of the host of Judah. I want you to notice the difference here between David and Solomon. David was the shepherd. He spared Joab's life. Who is Jesus Christ to you? He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. You know what he did? He spared your life. In this age, he spared your life, our good shepherd, our great shepherd. But Solomon doesn't picture Jesus Christ the shepherd. Solomon pictures Jesus Christ the judge. You know what you see there? No mercy. You see the judge executing his enemies like Jesus Christ is going to reign in that millennium with a rod of iron. 
Joab is grabbing the horns of the altar. That was like an emblem of, oh, oh God, have mercy on me. No, you shed blood. Vengeance is coming. You're going to pay the price. Do you see the difference in God's dealing? Today's age, the age of grace, praise God. Our good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep extends mercy to his enemies. But that day is going to end. And when Jesus Christ comes back and sits on that throne, you're not going to go out there. There's going to be no sacrifice to bring like you did before. There's going to be no cross to believe on like you did before. You step out of line, God's got a rod of iron, and it reaches around the world, and He's going to crack you. And that's the great difference we see between how David dealt with his enemies and how Solomon is dealing with them. Now go to chapter 3. Chapter 3. The wisdom of Solomon. Look at 3, 5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, now watch this, ask what I shall give thee. Wow! That is the first appearing of God to Solomon. And basically, God appears to Solomon the first time and asks him to pray for anything. Isn't that amazing? Imagine if God gave you a blank check like that. Hey, what do you want? Right? I probably say church building really fast, right? You know? But I want you to see Solomon's heart here. Look at verse 7. Look how Solomon sees himself. Solomon speaking. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. Please notice, Solomon still sees himself as a servant. He says, you've made your servant king. This is Solomon. He's the most powerful man in Israel. He's becoming one of the most powerful men in the earth. He says, hey God, I'm just your servant. He knew who he was, and he never forgot who he was. Dear Christian, no matter what office you may hold, what thing you may attain to, never forget the fact that you're God's servant. Pick up the garbage pick up a hymnal, help somebody carry something, ain't nobody too good for anything, right? And if Solomon could say, I'm a servant, you and I could say, God, we're just your servant. That's a great great heart attitude. Look at the rest of his heart attitude in the rest of the verse. And he says, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. The great King Solomon where they would come around the world to hear his wisdom in a few you know, years. This great king called himself a little child who didn't know anything. That's great humility to have. You want God to bless you? You want God to give you your desires? He says, ask what I shall give thee. You know why he could tell Solomon that request? Because Solomon was on blessing ground. Solomon saw himself as a servant, and he said, Lord, I don't know anything like I should. I don't have any, I don't have any wisdom apart from myself. God says, that's right, I want to give you my wisdom. You know, I know you've lived a little bit maybe, you've acquired some street smarts, you've acquired some, but when it comes to serving God, when it comes to doing things God's way, it'll be good if you just go to, Lord, I'm a stupid idiot. I'm like, I don't know anything, I'm a dingbat, I'm a cappadoc, I'm just like, I'm, I got a head like a sieve, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here, God, help me. You know what God does to a heart like that? He gives you wisdom. Amen. You seek him and say, Lord, I need wisdom. Proverbs 2 says, the Lord will give you wisdom out of his mouth. That's what he did for Solomon. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who give it to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But you know what the, the prerequisite of that course is? The prerequisite is, you've got to see yourself as a servant, and you've got to have that humility, except you be as a little child like Solomon. You can't be blessed like Solomon was blessed. Keep reading. Uh, 
chapter, verse 8. Verse 8, same chapter, verse 8. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people. He's talking about Israel now. Which thou hast chosen, a great people. Look how he talks about the nation. That cannot be numbered nor counted for multiple. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I might know tomorrow's lotto numbers. No. <laughs> that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this, thy so great a people. Look at in verse number 8 and 9. Please consider Solomon's attitude toward God's people, Israel. You see his attitude towards God's people? He's saying, Lord, I need you so I can help your people. I need something from you so I can bless your people. I need something for you from you so these great people that you've allowed me to minister to can be blessed. You know what we need as Christians? You know what we need the Word of God? You know what we need, we need wisdom? To help us help people. That's the lesson there. We need things not so we can just gobble it up. Look how much I know about the Bible. Look how much I know about God. Look how much I know about the future. I could tell you who the Antichrist is. So what? What are you doing to help somebody who needs help with the Word of God? I still remember Pastor Mel when he would visit Staten Island. And he would get behind that pulpit and he would bellow. He was getting up in years, but he would bellow and he would still say, The ministry is people, it's people, it's people. And he'd say it over and over again because he wanted to get across that the ministry is not Sunday school classes and ministries and building this and doing that. No, the ministry is you. The ministry is people. It isn't a nation, it's people. It's moms and dads and marriages and kids and all these different ages and all these different problems. And despite all those problems, Solomon saw the potential. He said, man, these people are great. Israel, so many times they were dingbats to God. You ever read through the book of Numbers and see how many times they disappointed God? You ever read the book of Judges and see the story about the guy who cut the lady apart and sent her body parts to the 12 tribes? That was Israel. You know what Solomon says? Oh man, these people are great. I just want to be able to minister to them. You know what? I want that heart. I want to look out at all of you and say, God, look at these. And I, I, I do. Look at these great people that you've, that you've brought together. Look at these. There's potential in this room. We've got to stop looking at each other cockeyed, looking at everybody to make a mistake, looking for everybody to slip up, looking at everybody like, oh, just a matter of time before you're on the list. No, we're supposed to have charity and say, you know what, God, you could do something with that brother. You could do something with that sister. Help me to be willing to help them. Amen. Because that's the Holy Spirit. That other spirit, that one you know better, and you know what they're all about, and you got the inside track, and you got your little black book because you know their deep, dirty secrets. Guess what? That's of the devil. That's wicked as the devil's hind leg. The Holy Spirit says, Hey, look at these great people. Look at their potential. You say, You're naive, Pat. Then don't wake me up because I just am stupid enough to believe that the Word of God in an honest heart can do something great for God. And I'm going to go to the grave just believing that God can do something with people. If not, I'm going back to whatever I used to do on Sunday. I didn't do anything else. But I just, having eggs, I don't know, just doing something else. We've got to have that heart like, like he had, despite their problems. Verse 9. And in verse 9, and I don't know, I just feel like, I just feel like, uh, I don't believe in ghosts, but I feel like the, the spirit of Mel Sabaka just like ringing through that point, you know. I know he was a people person. He just had a way with people. He just, he could charm you to repentance. He could just kind of look at you and, and like put his hand on your shoulder and just make you feel like, 
is he the fourth part of the Trinity? Because you'd feel like virtue go out of him or something like that, just like a touch and an, an encouraging word. He was always encouraging. I remember him encouraging me. I hardly knew him. Saying like, oh, you're going to do this, brother, and you're going to do that. I remember sitting in, a, in an institute class, and he wasn't like, you better do this right. And you, He was just like, you're going to do this. You're going to do this for God, and you're going to do that for God. And I see you doing this for God. And it was like, and we were like these little pipsqueak smurfs, like, wow. You know, and, 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 and the great Mel Sabaka, who, you know, did all the great things. You know what? He saw potential in people. Amen. And that's what Solomon saw with Israel. And so he asks in verse 9 for an understanding heart. Please notice he asked for an understanding heart. Give therefore thy servant an understanding. Now, we've got to separate some things. The Bible talks about three things. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. You say, what's the difference? Knowledge is the facts and the information. You need the Bible because you need to know some things. You need to know who God is. You need to know how to get saved. You need to know what's coming. There's a lot of knowledge to be gained from the Bible. The Bible is also a book of wisdom. Wisdom is about the application of those facts and information. Wisdom is more practical. It's what do I do with the knowledge, right? Understanding is the heart attitude to apply the knowledge God gives you. It's a heart attitude. Go to Proverbs chapter 4. Let me show you something. Let me show you something. Proverbs chapter 4. What I'm saying is, without understanding, knowledge and wisdom become useless. You have to have that understanding heart. Amen. Look at Proverbs chapter 4, verse 1, written by Solomon. And in Proverbs 4, 1, he's talking about wisdom. And Solomon says, Hear ye children, verse 1. Those first seven chapters of Proverbs are all direct towards the son, towards the children. Hear ye children, the instruction of a father, there's the knowledge, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, she sh- and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. That's a blessing. Therefore, get wisdom. But look what he says at the end. And with all thy getting, get understanding. He's saying, get all the wisdom you can, but you got to have understanding. you got to have the right heart attitude. You see, Solomon had a heart attitude. Give me an understanding heart. You know what God did? God dumped wisdom on him because he had a heart to use that wisdom the right way. A humility. Listen, I can have all the knowledge about biblical salvation, right? Have you ever witnessed to somebody? I spoke to a guy last week at my mom's birthday party. He knew about salvation, he goes, I know Christ died for my sins. He's telling me this stuff. That, you know what? He knew the facts. You know what wisdom is? Wisdom is, I can know how to apply the gospel to be saved. This guy even knew that I have to believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. He knew the facts. He knew how to apply the facts. The problem was, if I don't have a hard attitude that's humble enough to trust God, it's useless. This guy had pride. He had a level of accomplishment. And he just... You know, I can't do that. He knew the facts. He, had the, he, had the, he knew how to apply them, but he didn't have an understanding heart. And so everything was useless. Now go back to 1 Kings. Let me show you something about this wisdom that he gets now. 1 Kings. Am I making sense so far? 
All right. Got a little excited on that other part. Go back to my dignified teaching voice. <clears throat> no, I don't have one. I was reading a really boring article to my English class the other day, and I did it as a rabid German. I just did, I just do random accents for my kids. I was like, this is the way we're going to do it this way. And they're all like, oh, Mr. Michani, what other voices can you do? I said, there's a lot of voices up here. They're all struggling to get out. Don't tempt me. All right. First Kings 324. All right. Don't get any idea. I'm not preaching in any accents. All right. <laughs> but watch what happens. Now, we know what happens. God blesses Solomon, right? And the two women come, and you know the disagreement about the baby, right? And they have the disagreement about the baby. And she says, oh, this was my baby. And, you know, that was my baby. And what does Solomon do? Verse, uh, 1 Kings 3.24. And the king said, bring me a sword. Amen. And they brought a sword before the king. Solomon's use of the sword demonstrates Solomon's wisdom. Please know that your use of God's sword the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, will show others your wisdom. The way they see you applying this book is how you're going to show the world around you your wisdom. And what we see here uh, in verse 25 and 26, I'm not going to go, but what does Solomon say to do? Let's cut the baby in half. Just divide the baby in two, and you take half, you take half, and we're all good. And we know the story, right? The real mother, the real mother is so moved with compassion. She's like, well, just, just, she could take the baby. Just let the baby live. And Solomon says, well, that's got to be the mama. Give her the baby, etc., etc." You know what that teaches me? Something I've said before and I learned from somebody else. The Solomon principle. You're dealing with somebody, you know what the truth is on it. Just take you out a verse of the Bible. Just take out the sword. And the sword will show where people are at. The sword will reveal who's on the side of God and who's on the side of not God, right? It'll reveal the truth. Uh, let's just say you're trying to counsel somebody, right? Maybe you're counseling a, a, a couple having problems, and, you know, they're just going back and forth, back and forth, and you're kind of like sitting there like, I don't know what the truth is. You know what you got to do? You just got to find you a verse from the Bible, a principle from the Bible, just shing, pull out that sword and just whoosh, throw it down, and you'll see. So there's people having problems. You say, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says you're supposed to forgive one another. Just throw that sword down. You know what you'll see? You'll see who's on the side of God and who's not on the side of God. And all that smoke screen and all that noise and all that talk about he said, she said, this one, that one. You know what that is? That's all noise. You just pull out the sword and boom, you're going to see who's receptive to it and who's not receptive to it. The sword will reveal the truth. Don't worry about racking your brain trying to figure out, fact check, you know, research. Just get you a verse or a principle, throw it down, and you're going to see how the person reacts, and that's going to be all the revealing you're going to need. Right. Amen. Amen. Go to chapter 4. Chapter 4. The one who responds to the Word of God, that's the one that's on God's side. The other one that keeps flapping and keeps going in the other direction, keeps justifying, I got your number. I know where you're coming from. You're not with God, right? All right, 1 Kings uh, chapter 4 and 5. Chapters 4 and 5 show us how Solomon's kingdom is going worldwide. See chapter 4, look at verse 34. <clears throat> chapter 4, 34. <clears throat> and there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. Solomon's renown is worldwide, people. You read about six chapters later, the queen of Sheba 
even heard of him. And the queen of Sheba shows up to hear Solomon's wisdom. Now, I was doing some research. Many believe the kingdom of Sheba was over by present-day Ethiopia and maybe into modern-day Yemen, either both or one. Most say it's Ethiopia and Yemen, Ethiopia or Yemen, Yemen, but that's the area which they believe Sheba was. You know what that is? That's at least 1,500 miles from Jerusalem. To give you a little framework, that's from the top of West Virginia to the middle of Florida. It would take you 30 hours to drive it straight. She's on camels. She's on procession. This might have taken her a long time. So the renown of Solomon was so great that it got to her without texting, without internet, without anything, without mail. It traveled to her, and it was such an amazing report that she heard that she was willing to pack her stuff up and go on this trek to actually see who this guy was. This is the greatness of Solomon. And Jesus said, Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Now go to Isaiah chapter 66. You thought, you thought Disney World was a kingdom? <laughs> you, thought, you, thought, you, know, you thought the Taj Mahal was something to look at? Wait till Jesus Christ's millennium. Amen. It's going to be a worldwide phenomenon. It's going to take the world by storm. People's jaws are going to bounce up and down off the floor. Isaiah 66 is what Solomon is a fulfillment of, or a picture of this prophecy. He's a picture of this prophecy of this worldwide kingdom that Jesus Christ is going to have. Look at Isaiah 66. Look at verse number 18. Look at this cross-reference here. Isaiah 66, 18. The Bible says, uh, For I know their works. That's not what I want. Not 66, 18. Uh, 66. Where is it? Where did it go? Hmm. Wait a minute, I wrote the wrong verse down. Nuts. I don't usually do this, but I did it. Wait, all those things, is it 65? 60, no, not 65. Ah, oh, I'm killing myself here. Wait, stay with me. Look at, I'm looking for something that says all nations, um... Oh, it is 18. 18. What is wrong with me? A lot of things. Don't answer out loud. I saw something else. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So we get a little preview of that in Solomon's reign. Go to chapter 6 of 1 Kings. I got two more pictures I'll hurry through them. 1 Kings 6 again. Actually, you know what? Go to 2 Corinthians. I grab them. My grandmother would say, You're scumbinad today, Pat. Ah, Grandma. All right. You ever notice how like, the folks from the old country would have all these sayings? Man, they had some wisdom, right? They had such wisdom, you know? Second Corinthians, just go to the whole book. <laughs> chapter 5, chapter 5. It's all good. You pick a spot, you pick the verse, we'll preach on it. Now, Second Corinthians chapter 5. Um, but I, I want to reference, uh, what I'm saying is the heading for chapter 6 to 8 of 1 Kings is about building the temple. That's what I want to just point out. And there's nothing to look at yet, so. 
But building the temple is a beautiful picture of you building yourself up for God and your body being a temple for God. Now, before Solomon, the Ark of God, which is where God's presence abode, where did it stay? It abode in the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle, the tabernacle was a temporary dwelling. It was a tent. They packed it up, they set it up, and when that pillar moved, they had to pack it back up and go somewhere else. It's kind of like us on a Sunday morning. We pack it up, we come here, when the time is up, we pack it back up, and we move it back out. And that's what, it was a temporary dwelling. That's, that's where God abode in tents. The Bible says he abode in tents, temporary dwelling. Okay, Solomon then is charged with not just building a, tab- a tabernacle, he's charged with building the temple. And the temple was going to be a permanent dwelling. When they put that ark into the temple, they drew the staves out. The staves were those long rods that carried the tabernacle on the shoulders of those, that, those Levites. Guess what? They pulled those staves out because God was going into that temple to stay. There was a permanence there, and Solomon's temple stayed there until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. And it will be, the temple will be rebuilt. All right, uh, now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse number 1. You know your body is called two things. Your body is called a tabernacle, and your body is called a temple. Let's look at that. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved... We have a building of God in house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Jump to verse 4. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, right? You are not your body. If you went off to war and you had your legs blown off, you're not less of a person, right? You are a soul living inside your body. Your eyes look out of your body, right? You are not your body. And that's saying, we are in this body, we're in this temporary dwelling, and we can't wait to get out of it, right? So, your physical body is called a tabernacle, a temporary dwelling. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't worry, I'm going to tell this guy, I think you could turn the air conditioning off in the library. <laughs> some of you like it, some of you don't like it. I'm like, I think the air conditioning is still on. Uh, I'm watching everybody put their layers on and, and, and pray, Pat, hurry up. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. So in this passage, your physical body is also called a temple. A temple is a permanent dwelling. Now, is this a contradiction? On the one hand, your body is called a tabernacle, which is temporary. On the other hand, your body is called a temple, which is permanent. Is there a contradiction in our Bibles? What does God mean? Let's, let's just slow it down. Let's look at 2 Corinthians again. Let's just put... 2 Corinthians 5 in one hand and 1 Corinthians 6 in the other hand and maybe that'll produce warmth. All right. Notice in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, the question is, how can your body be a tabernacle, temporary, and a temple, permanent? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, 4 says, For we that are in this tabernacle do groan. 
Your body is a temporary dwelling for your soul. (laughs) You are leaving your body behind. You're getting a new body to live in. Right? So when it comes to you, we that are in this tabernacle do groan because we have a temporary dwelling for our, our soul right now. It's this house of clay. It's this body of flesh. But 1 Corinthians 6.19 says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? You know why? Because the Holy Ghost isn't leaving. The Holy Ghost, the Bible says, took up residence in your Bible. And Ephesians 4.30 says he sealed himself there unto the day of redemption. So the Bible is right and we're wrong. When it comes to your soul, yeah, your body's a temporary dwelling. You're leaving this bag of bones behind and he's going to give you a brand new body that never perishes. But when it comes to God dwelling in you, he says your body's permanent. I'm staying. I've sealed myself unto the day of redemption. So the Bible is very precise with its words. Don't change them. God knows exactly what he's saying. Now go to 1 Kings chapter 6. I'm sure that's just an accident. 1 Kings chapter 6. Let's look at some things about Solomon building this temple that could be about you building yourself up and your body for God. 1 Kings 6. Now, I know some of us like to exercise. Bodily exercise profiteth little. Right? It's good to have some so you can get from house to house doing Operation Jerusalem. Right? You don't want to be able to move around. I get it. But that's not the building up I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 6, 7. 1 Kings 6, 7 says, And the house, when it was in building, was built of stone made ready before it was brought thither, so that there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. Please notice that the temple was not built with man's tools or devices. You know why? Because your maturation process, you being built up into all God wants you to be, is not a work of men. And he may use men in your life, like a great man like Mel Sabaka or an older sister in Christ to disciple you or something like that. But the one who's really doing the building is God. <laughs> That's why when he built that temple, he said, don't bring your hammers and your saws and your chisels. Don't bring any tools in here. I'm teaching you something. This is stone that God has made ready. We're just going to take these stones that have been made ready without and we're going to bring them there and we're going to build this temple. God says, None of your tools have any place in there because none of your devices and wisdom is able to build you up. It's got to be God that builds you up. Amen? That's the picture. Verse 37 of the book. Verse 37 of the book. Verse 37. In the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid. In the month Ziph. So, in the fourth year, right? We got that. I'm going to do a little simple math here. Verse 38. And in the eleventh year, in the month Bull, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof and according to all the fashion of it. So he was seven years in building, right? Right? Seven years. It's interesting that, you know, your King James Bible, they started translating in 1604, in the fourth year, and they finished it in 1611. Took seven years. I don't know. It's just, I'm sure there's just an accident. But the thing that I do want you to notice is that the temple took seven years to build the temple. 
Why seven years? Because that's God's number of perfection. That's God's number of completion. That's God's number of maturity. So when God said, you know what, Solomon, I need you to finish this up in the seventh year, because in a few thousand years, a bunch of uh, saved knuckleheads are going to try to figure out why you picked this many years to build the temple, and they're going to need to know the correlation to you. So it's got to be seven years, because it's about you maturing, Christian. It's about God building you up, Christian. So you know what it's about? The maturation process. It's seven, because that's the picture of God building you and maturing you and perfecting you. Keep going. Look at verse 22 of chapter 8. Go to chapter 8. I'm almost done. I'm hurrying. Chapter 8. Verse 22. So they build the temple, and Solomon's going to come down and dedicate it. And it says in chapter 8, verse 22, please notice Solomon's posture. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. Right? So, there is Solomon. He starts the prayer of dedication. How? He starts the prayer of dedication standing. With his hands lifted up to heaven. Now go to verse 54. It's a long prayer. A lot of verses. A lot of stuff. It's probably a couple of pages in your Bible. And in verse 54, I want you to notice how Solomon finishes the prayer. And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he arose from before the altar from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. That's, by the way, that's the first mention of kneeling in your Bible, right there. That's the first time we have anybody that says they were kneeling, right there. But I want you to notice, Solomon finishes the prayer of dedication on his knees. You say, what does that show me, Pat? As you grow and as you mature in the Lord, you know what's supposed to start happen to your attitude? It's supposed to change. You know how you start when you're building up your temple and dedicating yourself to God? You start on your own two feet. God, I'm here for you. You feel strong. You feel mighty. You feel, God, I'm going to charge hell with a squirt gun. Solomon stands up there to dedicate this great edifice to God, and he's standing. But you know what? After a little bit of time, Solomon's down on his knees. And Christian... Young guys, younger guys, young ladies, younger ladies. I know we start like with the proverbial like zeal and it's like, God, I'm going to do something great for you and God, here I am and I've got so much strength and I've got so much time and I've got so much vigor. But you know what happens? As you start growing with God, you start realizing how limp you are and you just depend on God for everything and you finish up kneeling on your knees, dependent on God for everything. We start by standing on our own two feet, and we end up on our knees before God. That's a good progression we all have to have as we dedicate our temple to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Now in Ephesians chapter 6, you say, why is, prayer, why is prayer such a hallmark of this temple getting dedicated? Ephesians 6, right? We don't have to flip there. But it's about the armor. There's only two parts that are not covered. Your back and your knees down. Say, why isn't your back covered? Because there's no retreat in this war. There's no discharge in this war. God gave you nothing for your back because you're not supposed to turn and run. You're not supposed to be giving up. You're not supposed to be fleeing the battle. Christian, you're supposed to be going forward. So there's nothing for your back. And there's nothing for your knees down because you're supposed to fight this battle on your knees. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. How do we get a hold of God? We pray, right? 
What did William Cooper say? Satan trembles when he sees even the weakest Christian on his knees. Amen. Finally, 1 Kings 9. We'll finish right here. 1 Kings 9. I'll leave you with this. Last idea in chapter 9. God's second appearance and God's warning to Solomon. I want you to see this picture. It makes sense in my mind. Let's see if it makes sense in your mind. When we read back in 1 Kings 3, God showed up the first time. What did God do? What did God tell Solomon when he showed up the first time? Ask me anything. You know, the first time God shows up, first time when Jesus came the first time, he came for them. He came to bless them. He came to give them. You know, when God first shows up in your life, you know what you are? You're needy. God, I need this from you. I need peace. I need salvation. I need hope. I need direction. I need deliverance. You know what? When God first shows up in your life and first appears in your life, you know what? It's about what He can do for you. But the second time God shows up, it's about Solomon. He's what you need to do for me. See chapter 9, verse 1? And it came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire, which he pleased, was pleased to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he had appeared unto him at Gibeon. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer, meaning the prayer of the temple, and thy supplication that thou hast made for before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built, to put my name there forever, and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. And if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and wilt keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if ye shall not at all turn from following me, ye are your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them. And this house, which I have hallowed for my name, will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. And at this house, which is high, everyone that passeth by it shall be astonished, and shall hiss, and they shall say, Why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and to this house? And they shall answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have taken hold upon other gods, and have worshipped them, and served them. Therefore hath the Lord brought upon them all this evil. First time God shows up in Solomon's life, it's all about, here's what I can do for you, Solomon. Second time God shows up in Solomon's life, it's, hey, Solomon, here's what you better do for me. Because if you don't do this for me, I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to leave this house desolate. Now, first time God shows up in your life, when he starts moving in your life, it's all about, I'll help you with this, I'll help you with that, I'll help you with this, help you with that. But guess what? You build up your temple a little bit, you start to learn a little bit, you start to grow a little bit. You know what? God shows up and says, hey, I love you but you better follow me because if you don't follow me, I'm going to leave your house desolate. And people are going to look at you and say, I thought he knew God. I thought she knew God. And you'll be a reproach when you should have been a blessing. You know what else I see in this? When Jesus Christ came the first time, it's all about you. Died for your sins, helped you out, bore your griefs, right? Carried your sorrows, wounded for your transgressions. Second time Jesus Christ shows up, It's about what have you done for Him. And when Jesus Christ shows up the second time, He's coming to see what you've done for Him. 
and to reward you and possibly give you a throne. So that's a warning. You better be doing something. You better be following. You better not just be like, God, what can you give me? As you grow, it better be a little bit about, hey, God, what can I do for you? Because when he comes back in about, I don't know, just a few minutes on God's clock, when he comes back, he's coming back to see, what have you done for me? Amen? So we'll finish this up maybe next time. Let's have a word. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for bearing.